Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results. With your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Michael Kia. Michael is an experienced finance professional and tech industry veteran with over 20 years of building teams, driving transformational change, and instituting operational efficiency. Prior to joining Bright Machines, he was president of Stanley X and was also the CFO for the company's emerging markets business. Previously, Michael ran R&D finance and held leadership positions in corporate FP&A and operations at Apple and at Intel in finance and strategy roles with a focus on manufacturing operations. Michael holds a bachelor's degree in industrial relations from the University of North Carolina and an MBA from Cornell University. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so you're the CFO for a technology company that is transitioning to a new phase of growth with an eye towards going public. And today we're going to be discussing your journey to get to this point as well as the challenges and opportunities that come with this type of transition. So let's start with you and how it is that you got to where you are today. Okay, great. Regarding my background, coming out of business school, I knew I wanted to be in the technology industry and specifically targeted moving to the West Coast and and joining a technology company. And so I started out at Intel out of business school and had a good career there, spent almost 14 years in in a variety of roles. They have a pretty good program with moving people around to get a good breadth of finance experience to eventually make someone CFO ready. And I also had the opportunity to move around to a bunch of locations all over the world while working for Intel. And I happened to be living in China. And at that time, I had an opportunity to go work for Apple while living there and had a great experience leading their finance supply chain while living there in China and helping manufacture all the Apple products. And after a couple of roles there as well, I actually spent the last several years in something very different. I was helping an industrial company, Stanley Black & Decker, try to set up their first software products, a company that really was trying to begin the phase of digital transformation for the company. And so I set up an office in Silicon Valley, hired the very first software development teams and created an incubator where we were developing software products for the same industries that Stanley Black & Decker was already in, but really trying to develop SaaS subscription revenue type model for the company. And I did that for several years. And then uh, just recently, last year, I've joined Bright Machines as the CFO. And really here, the this is a fast-growing company that I came to help them go through the IPO process and prepare to be a public company and, and scale for the next phase of growth. Wow. It sounds like you've had an, an amazing career. Just going back to your experience at Intel, you mentioned moving around through different roles with that company. Were any of those roles in operations or was it all within finance and accounting? Just about all the roles were finance and accounting. Okay. Uh, there, there, there was some brief periods where I stepped out of the role, but those were not the norm. So I spent most all the time in finance roles. Okay. Yeah. I'm just always interested to... I know the role of the CFO is becoming more operational as time goes on. And uh, yeah, I, I'm always interested in those leadership programs and how they develop 
the future CFO. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right in the, the, the need to be able to step in and take on operational roles or, or act in a capacity outside of just a finance leader, I think is increasingly necessary and, and almost an expectation in a lot of finance leadership roles. But ideally, as a finance leader, you understand the business well enough and you've got the respect of all the rest of your peers in these roles that should the need arise, you're always able to step in and fulfill operational roles. So as you look back on on your career, are there moves or turning points that stand out in your mind at all? Yeah, I think there is a couple. One of which is, is a part of, I have taken on many different roles, everything from doing M&A type work to even doing a stint in internal audit and trying to go around and develop a breadth of experience as a part of my career journey. I had some good advice early on that I truly believe in after having followed that advice, which is not always to pursue the roles that are considered the most desirable, that sometimes taking on roles that are considered maybe less visible or less desirable from a breadth or scope of work type of perspective, that sometimes those, there's roles that could be underappreciated, but that there is a huge amount of opportunity to add value. And so when considering the next step in a career to, to think through what you're going to do, what kind of skills you may develop or what type of opportunity there may be, it's don't overlook some of these underappreciated type roles. So I think that um, sometimes that comes together with ambiguity, roles that are not necessarily clear on it may not be completely clear regarding, is this a going to turn into something big? Is this temporary? Is it just a, a need for the time being? But it's it really boils down to, I think, where's there a need? And sometimes where there's a biggest need, it's where there's either a situation where it's not a great situation. It may be a part of something that's not growing. It may need to be getting smaller, but help is needed. And so following the roles where you think you can add that most value is one. And I've done that several times. One example I can think of is, is I took a role in supply chain at one point in time that was really just working on logistics. I think it was underappreciated, but I learned a lot. And there was, to me, it was one of the more rewarding roles just because I broadened some experience in a space I didn't know much about, but also had just great business partner relationship with the people I worked with. And uh, ultimately, it was a skill set that I realized even in today's world where we've seen fragile supply chains, it's been some experience that I've been able to leverage for years. And a second, example that I just share is making a decision to leave a company. I'd been at Intel for a long time, a company that well-respected, treats their employees well. And after about 14 years there, I made a decision to leave. And it seemed like it was a really difficult thing to do after having established relationships and developed a track record to go make a change and go someplace new. It's a switching cost. And at the time, I think I overweighted how important that was. But after having made the change going to, and now several times in my career to new companies, I think it's just valuable and learning to grow new networks, but also learning to adapt to change in different company cultures and how decisions are made. And those are all things that I think are valuable because they keep you fresh. And they also, they prevent you from only viewing things in a certain way in a system that you've learned. And so by going to these, making some of these changes, I think I've become much more rounded. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I think oftentimes people shy away from change or uncomfortable roles and in doing so, they really miss out on opportunities along the way. So let's talk about Bright Machines and what it is that 
they do? Sure. Bright Machines is a company that is focused on intelligent manufacturing automation. So essentially what that means, it's software-defined automation. If you think about uh, manufacturing, there is the final assembly of many of of the products that are used in the world today, which is taking the various components and then assembling them into the final finished good that consumers buy. That process, that end of the manufacturing process is about 95% manual around the world today. And what we've seen with the environment today, which there's a lot of influences at play, but if you think about the fragile supply chain that we're experiencing today, driven by many factors, whether it is the fact that the worldwide supply chain has relied upon various different geographical locations to do certain portions of manufacturing process, and they all need to be coordinated to get to that final product in the customer's hand. We've seen that can be proven to be fragile with just the time delivery and, and with supply chain shocks. And companies have been looking to adjust. And some of that means manufacturing more locally, where manufacture where they sell. That has run into challenges. It's run into challenges with getting factories up and running quickly, finding available skilled labor to manage them. And all of these things have been driving demand for what a company does. And essentially, what we do is we help automate some of these assembly processes. So we know that this portion of manufacturing is one of the last holdouts of all the industries in the world uh, regarding adoption of software. And we really take whatever a company is assembling, whether it is consumer products, whether it's servers that go into data centers, whether it's automotive sub-assemblies, it can be medical equipment, all of these products which have huge demand today, companies are struggling with manufacturing fast enough. And so whatever type of assembly process they have, we can help them automate. So it makes it less manual. It makes it higher availability. So you can run 24-7. You can, by automating to a super high level precision, you can improve yields, reduce waste, and also help set up smaller manufacturing footprints closer to end customers. And so that's what we help do. It's essentially a layer of software, our manufacturing operating system, which allows this to happen. And is it, is it just the final assembly or every step along the process? Our focus is primarily final assembly. That is the part that is still so very automated today. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be complete lights out manufacturing, which means that you can just have a completely automated factory that you don't even need to have people walking around at all inside that four walls of factory. That We are still years away from that ever happening. Really, what I think this addresses is some of the portions of manual labor today that are still very fraught by user error, by judgment, right? A lot of visual inspection that happens today, you can automate and get much higher reliability and yield. And so it really just takes on some of the elements today that can absolutely shut down a manufacturing line because if if one person doesn't show up for work. Or if they're not trained adequately, can really create bottlenecks that we help address. Or if there's a COVID outbreak, (laughs) which we've seen a lot the last (laughs) two years. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I didn't even go there because it's so ubiquitous in conversations today. But I mean, COVID has only accelerated the demand for what we do and, and, and highlighted why how fragile supply chains can be. But that's absolutely the case is and is helping companies address that as well. 
And you mentioned that you joined them about a year ago. So that was like kind of right in the middle of the pandemic. How was it joining a new company or how has it been in the last two years? Any, any like uh, unique challenges? I mean, are you guys remote or working on site? And if remote, how has it been kind of acclimating into company culture? Yeah, I think there's a variety of challenges, but yes, I did join last year during this pandemic time. And I'm working out of our San Francisco headquarters, but we do have pretty global footprint with, with offices in Israel, Mexico, China, Austin, Texas, and, and San Francisco. And so we, we're spread out. We have been in a somewhat hybrid environment. We, people were going into our San Francisco office some period of one or two days a week. That certainly helped. The company's two and a half years old. But a lot of the growth has been experienced during the pandemic. And so there's always this risk of what kind of culture are you creating? And I've always believed that for a company that's been around a while, that pre-pandemic times was the traditional work in the office, that as COVID began and everyone started working from home, these companies could benefit from the relationships that people had built prior to the pandemic. And they could leverage those. And so working remotely was more seamless than people may have imagined simply because I think those relationships could be leveraged because of the time spent together in the office, because of the team dinners. And the real challenge I believe exists with the companies that have been experiencing rapid growth since and how how do you leverage relationships that have only been built and and nurtured online? And I, I don't know that everyone has a great answer for it. And so what we've had to do with that is we have placed value on trying to get people together in person. You know, some of the things we did is saying, you know, following all the correct COVID protocols, these are the days that we're going to target to have everyone come work together. Please join. We would buy team lunches. That always seemed to be a great way to get people in the office. Even with long commutes, free lunch seems to always be a, a huge draw. We were actually getting a lot of people in there to meet during those times. So we'd still be primarily working from home. But the uh, developing... Building this team, I think what we've done, like many others, is definitely open ourselves up to bringing in talent from many other locations. So from day one, knowing that we're hiring people that are based out of locations that we do not have offices and that this, these employees are going to permanently be remote employees. That's helped. It's helped significantly because we have a much bigger talent pool to draw from. Yeah. And you know, while we continue to work in this work from home or remote time period, I think it's been, everyone's adapted pretty easily. Everyone's available. You call them online, doesn't really matter where they're sitting. I still believe we're going to have to navigate the post-pandemic period, which is when we get to whatever the next step looks like, which I believe is going to be some hybrid environment, whatever that is, however that's defined, whether it's work a few days from home or not, how you incorporate the rest of the remote employees that we have value and as talent. But they don't have the option to come in a couple of days a week. I think that's just, uh, everyone's got some thoughts, but we'll have to see how that plays out because I think we'll have to figure it out, but how those people feel like they have the right visibility and have the same career prospects is a story that we're still writing. Yeah, definitely been navigating through some uncharted territory <laughs> the past couple of years. But as you look back on the time you have spent at Bright Machines, what what are your proudest achievements? I know it's just been a short period of time, but... It's a good question. I think that there has been much to do. You know, on that list of things to do, it was build a team, 
there were some finance team in place, but not the size or experience level needed to be a publicly traded company. So part of it was building out the team. Something in particular, I think, when I got in was preparing the narrative for the investors. So the whole, what is the story that we want to tell? Uh, How do we develop the relationships with the investment community and really get them excited and on board with our story? I think our vision has been something that implicitly people understand. The need for what we're doing today, automating this portion of manufacturing, has been something almost not questioned. People feel like there's, there's a need. It's more around how we've been telling the story about how we will achieve it. The investors have been particularly interested in how we invest smartly. This is something that a lot of companies have tried, but have not solved in any scale way so far. So, And what we're trying to do is a little more difficult now. We're trying to do a full stack. We're selling an out-of-the-box hardware with integrated software solution. Many people are, many companies are trying one or the other, but both is taking on more. And so that, I think the, that narrative for the investors and those relationships and getting them to understand what we're doing has been something that I think has gone well. Another one has been the raising money and continuing to give us runway for the growth. And the last piece is, is some of the necessary work as far as getting us from private to preparing to be public, which is going back and redoing some of our prior year audits to get us at PCAOB standards, getting some of our basic processes and controls in place that we need uh, for that next stage of growth. There's a lot of, I'd say, pain that's experienced from going through a company that wants to move fast, make decisions quickly without creating bureaucracy. At some point, there are trade-offs that need to be made around. We need to make sure that there's some segregation of duty here, that people that need to make certain decisions can also have someone else help you know, reviewing those decisions and people are not making things in, in a complete silo where not only you're not trying to prevent people from making bad decisions, but you're also trying to make sure that you've got a well-rounded business decision. And so some of those basic controls, I think we've got some in place, but a good a good roadmap for how to get to where we, what I think the, we need to be. To your point about processes, how do you identify which processes are probably not going to scale when growth happens? <laughs> um, I think, <laughs> Is I think there in any reality, way before it's yeah, actually broken? Reality, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What happens is at the stage we are, and I think a lot of people can probably identify with it, is that they're breaking around you. And so it's, it's um, you don't often have the luxury of thinking ahead about, I'd like to fix this one by next quarter or by next year, I want to have these done. You start to address the ones that are just not working today. Yeah, And that is when a company is growing fast, that starts to happen often enough that that's the, your prioritization process is driven by necessity. And that's where you focus on this one needs to be fixed now. And oh, you know, look what just happened over here. We need to go fix that now. And it's more a matter of, do I think the real art is and not so much the sciences, there's processes, but how much is good enough as you build a team and you bring in people that have various backgrounds, some from smaller companies and some from bigger. In some people's mind, you know, there's an ideal standard, but a gold standard, it all depends on what you're measuring to. Is it for a company of a certain scale that is just not overly complex and, and overkill for what we need at this stage of our growth? That's where some of the art comes in as to what's good enough and what isn't. What's just not meeting the minimum. And so I think the goal is to try to set 
here's the minimum criteria we need for a process to ensure that we either have the right controls in place to feel like that we have, again, a segregation of duty, um, need met, but we also have the proper input. Does this need legal review or does finance need to understand the accounting implications? So we have the right decision makers. And then the element of timing, how quickly do we need to get this made, get this decision made? Those are the elements I think that come into agreeing upon a process. And you have to be open to tearing it down and doing something different if that proves not to be successful. So I do think it's an iterative process and it doesn't, it's not check the box and, and you're done. It's kind of in an organization like finance, I think it continues to evolve. And what advice would you offer to CFOs out there who are about to make this transition to a publicly traded company? How do you prepare for that? I was asking the same questions myself. I think it's one of those experiences that uh, all the preparation will only get you to a certain point of readiness. And, and, and some of it is just having is living through it. I do find valuable to have your network, whether it's uh, trusted mentors or even just a network of peers that you can rely upon. There's a huge comfort that comes from knowing you can ask people certain questions. I'll give you an example as, as we were going through, right when I joined the company, we were in the process of re-auditing some of our last two years of financial statements. And the auditor was drawing some conclusions about our state of controls and the things we needed to address. And so I was not completely confident in how to work with the auditor on what is the right outcome. So there's a balance between let's address the issues that need to be addressed versus a standard. And what is the right standard for the stage of the company? And within auditing, there are certain frameworks that you need to be within, but I really wanted to rely upon... I had some people on my team that had some experience there, but I also just wanted to get some outside advice uh, as far as working with an auditor to get this audit closed. What are the things that I should be pushing back on? What are the things that we should just say, no, that's we all agree and we move on right? because there's there's some ambiguity there. So I absolutely got help from some people within my mentor network just that have had more experience here. And so I think it's very helpful to have that as you're going through some of the learning that just comes with this. And I think the other advice I would offer is just uh, that you've got to rely upon some of the team that you're bringing in is know where, know where the things, those really the areas of strength that you relied upon throughout your career and be keenly aware of the things that you haven't been. And when you're building your team is make sure you're bringing on people that fill in those gaps for you. Yeah. Because I think part of, being public is just a different level of visibility and scrutiny. And of course, there are, I think there's a couple of black and white standards. Being public means you, you have to be predictable. And as a finance team, I think that's one of the absolute top priorities is have you helped build predictability into your company? You've got to be able to talk to that as the company and everyone within the leadership team that has to be woven into their DNA at this point, if they're going to be an executive leader at a publicly traded company, they've got to help with that predictability of the business and, and play a role in that process. And so that's the standard that I think you've really just got to make sure around is, is you don't want to be in a situation where you're unpredictable to the extent that you have processes in place to help with that. And I think a private company, you still have that same level of scrutiny. You're trying to scale fast growth. And there are some quarters where your forecast can be off and then you can figure out what went wrong and course correct and 
And when you're public, there's just different level of tolerance for that. And so I think that's the biggest thing you're trying to measure is when do you think you're ready on that predictability measurement? Yeah, that's some great advice. Uh, Know your strengths, know your weaknesses and build the team around you that can supplement for those weaknesses. Yeah. Um, So you have quite a bit of experience working at technology companies. Is there anything specific to technology companies that a CFO at one of those companies should know or be prepared for? Yeah, I'll speak to my perspective. And it it may not vary significantly from other industries. I just don't have the depth of experience in those others. But I think one thing that matters a whole lot in the technology industry is given the industry, the products you have may be extremely complex. They may be, by the definition of a tech industry, there's something technical about about the product that you bring to market. So I think it's understanding the product at the technical level, as well as the business partners that you're working with is what is going to be one of your absolute top measurements of success. So it's really having a passion to know the product and not just product itself, but it's what differentiates it. What is your competitive advantage? If you understand that, at a somewhat technical level, I think it makes your, I think it makes you, your chances of being successful far greater. I think it makes your impact to the business far greater. And your ability to help the company go in the right direction, I think is very much predicated upon that. And so just being willing to spend the time to try to understand that differentiation, to understand the technical merits of the product, and to act like an engineer, whether or or not you are one, I think is just one of the most important things you can do in the industry because everyone you're working with is going to respect that you've gotten that level of of knowledge. And people want to know that if you're trying to help them invest smartly to grow the business and help make the right business decisions, is that you're understanding this element. You're not just worried about FP&A and having accurate tracking in the numbers, but you really understand there's going to be decisions that you're going to have to make regarding spending. It could be whether you're developing defensive IP portfolio, it could be M&A, it could even be just with our limited cash, what is the most important thing we invest in to continue to grow or or win in in our space? People want to know that you understand this. And so that's my long-winded way of saying how important I think it is for a CFO in this industry to do that. I imagine it's also a very fast pace of change within technology too. It's not like some other industries where you have the luxury of being able to pause for a moment. I imagine that you have to deal with a lot of change. Yeah, certainly. And I think if you look at the market environment that we've been in um, right now, I'd say it's just a really good example. I mean, super volatile environment. I think in the past periods where we've almost relied upon just a straight upward trajectory and growth, in the tech industry is feels like we're entering a different period. Certainly from a from a stock price perspective, which is not the same thing as the, the economic fundamentals of the business, but from a stock price perspective, you're seeing volatility and how the market reacts to with prospects of these companies. But in reality, I think what we're seeing is there's been there has been and continues to be massive investment in the industry. You know, from the early on venture capital side, but what we've seen is, is also a big sea change over the last five years or so with, with PE getting into this space, as well as even just 
Fortune 500 companies themselves, but companies that have not traditionally been technology players, but investing in this space. I think all of that means that the pace to change is fast because huge investment going into it. And what's a differentiator for you? You know, have you developed a product that customers are willing to pay for long term? There's such a change from buying a product to paying for a subscription to actually now paying per use. It's been a very fast evolving model, even from that perspective. It's I may be buying the same product, but how I'm paying for it over time has evolved very quickly. And that requires a lot of nimbleness from a finance organization regarding how are they building out this business model? How are they able to talk to a transition sometimes between those types of payment models? And, and what's the right... Have we figured out the right level of stickiness for us as a company to keep up with this market change? So what advice, uh, speaking of volatility, do you have for CFOs who are maybe looking to drive strategic value to grow revenue or increase margin, particularly in this inflationary period? Yeah. Costs seem to be uh, spiraling out of control. Yeah, well, you're right, right. In an inflationary environment, we certainly see what's happening with wage growth. We see that, and with the number of open jobs today, one of the first and most important issues that I think we have to address is employees and are, what is the company doing to ensure that it's a good place to work and people are being paid prevailing compensation? Right, the markets move quite quickly, and so employees have choices. And of course, we've heard a whole lot about the fact that the massive number of job changes people are making, or the you know, the amount of people that are leaving their jobs. There's certainly been some pent up demand there that uh, is now that pressure is being released. But given the fact that there's now more remote work options, I think just this whole that. How do you retain employees? Because the cost of turnover is extremely high. So that's one. Strategic value really comes from having the right level of talent on your team. I think is that that is the big differentiator for all companies. And another one, if you think about a rising interest rate environment, the long recent history we've had of super low interest rates and almost free cost of borrowing is going to be changing. And so I do think we're entering a phase where we've got to be preserving capital thinking much more about, like I, I talked about, an evolving model of, of, of how people pay for their products and services is the companies have to be out ahead of that. And I think the most important thing there when you talk about strategic value is do you understand your own customer? It really comes down to that. And the CFO has to understand that as well. It's CFO has got to be outwardly looking and ideally has some conversations with customers to know how their product's being used. Because I think that really helps when it comes to strategic value, if the CFO can be a part of those conversations and know how their product is being used and, and that value, that's really where you're trying to invest in the future is continuing to provide that value so that there continues to be a demand. Great answer. So last question, and perhaps you just touched on it a bit, but as a CFO, what is keeping you up at night? Right now, for my situation, it's really how can we meet our customers' demand? So we have a a wonderful problem to have, which is going back to what I mentioned earlier, that the market loves our story about trying to help address supply chain fragility. But how do we be a bit judicious about how we work with customers and 
that sometimes that actually <laughs> means saying no to some customers because we can't take on too much or we'll be spread too thin. And where we are right now, it's we have to be very selective and working with the right customers to deliver the right value that leads us to the next step. We have learned that across many, many industries, there's demand for what we do, but we have to focus on the right ones that allow us to have margins so that we can have some profitable growth. It would be too easy just to say yes to everyone. And um, saying yes to everyone, I think, just uh, means that we're inevitably going to make many people unhappy. And so it's part of it is let's be selective. And given that I want to make sure that we preserve capital to survive, it's how do we have the right framework for what we say yes to? That, that's really the biggest thing. And then second is, as we talked about with employees in this environment today in the industry, people have choices. So that's good talent. You always want to keep it. And so those are the two most important things that I'm focused on. Yeah, I think you're right. That sounds like a good problem to have when uh, <laughs> when you can be selective about the customers you take on. Michael, thank you so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate you having me, Megan. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed speaking with you and hearing about your experiences and all the resulting insights. And I appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today. And I wish you and Bright Machines all the best. Sounds like you're both doing wonderful things. And to all of our listeners, please tune in next week. And until then, take care. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personive.com. Thanks for listening.